Welcome to Planet SciComm. Uh, we have today with us um, Sarah Yeo, our normal um, podcast co-host, and I'm Jason McDermott, and we're welcoming um, Michelle Nighthouse. Michelle is a, a science journalist and author who's written um, a couple of books. Uh, her most recent is um, Beloved Beasts. It's about... Uh, it's about conservationists and the history of conservationists, uh, wildlife conservationists. I'm about halfway through it right now, and it's fascinating. I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, so welcome, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, I have a random question. Is it beloved or beloved? <laughs> I, I was yeah, just thinking I that when Jason writes so then When I was saying it, I was thinking it too. I think it answers to both. Um, I call it okay. beloved. <laughs> yes. Okay. I was just curious yeah. because that's what yeah. I would have said, I think, but mm -hmm. you're yeah. right. I think it can be pronounced either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it's great to have you here. Good, um, good point. And, should... I, and I'm sure I actually heard you pronounce it because um, Michelle and I uh, gave a talk at uh, my institution, uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab, um, several months ago. And uh, she gave a great talk on um, on some elements of uh, science journalism and science outreach and science communication that I'm sure will come up in this conversation. So I'm sure she said it numerous times. I've just, you know, when you're sitting and looking at the word, sometimes it's uh, can be difficult to. Yeah, and it was an in person. In person it was talk, in person. Right? In person. Yeah, Jason yeah. and I had the pleasure of meeting in person and even sharing a meal, which. It's such a rare pleasure these days. It is. Yeah. It is such a rare pleasure. And uh, something that I discovered after that meeting was, um, and I think when I was probably looking for the podcast, I looked at uh, your LinkedIn or something, and I was like, you graduated from Reed College, and I graduated from Reed College. Um, I How could we not smell it on each other? <laughs> I don't know. That is, yeah, that is a big question. We were meeting in person, so that should have been a, yeah. Um, I know. That kind of the whiff of yeah. the uh, the student union. <laughs> I would like to hear more right. about this. Wafting off of us. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. And where is the Reed? Reed smell oh. is legendary. Sorry. Oh, it's in Portland, Oregon, uh, Southeast Portland. It's a beautiful campus that looks a lot like an Ivy League, Northeaster, North, blah, blah, Eastern, you know, U.S. Ivy League school. Um, they filmed... Uh, They've, they've done movies and TVs uh, shots there sometimes. And oh. um, you'll occasionally catch one of those where you're like, I think that's Reed because it's looks so much like a, you know. Goodwill hunting comes to mind. But... Brooks and Ivy and yeah, that kind of thing. Very cool. What did you, um, did you, were you in biology? I was, I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. So was I. Biology was great. We had some wonderful professors uh and wonderful courses there reed is a small liberal arts school and when they say small it is like very small and and kind of intense um and so there's a there's a, a culture around reed that is is um i was coming from high school you know where i was like yeah, I got, you know, mostly A's in high school and all the teachers loved me and I could get away with lots of things, academically speaking. And then you come to read and you're like, now I'm like middle to, you know, if I'm if I'm being generous, I'm in the middle of the pack. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the professors are great and wonderful and would talk with you, but they would not cut you slack in the way that I got cut slack at high school. That was a great realization for me. Yeah, pretty demanding place, mostly in good ways, some, some in bad. But... So, yeah, hmm, exactly. I feel like that might describe a lot of students' experiences with college, because that was my experience from high school to college as well, right? That I didn't work very hard in high school and, and did really quite well. Yeah. Um, and then got to college and was a solid C student in my major classes because <laughs> I didn't do any of the work. Who knew reading the textbook could up my grade so much, right? I, I wonder about that. I was I was actually just talking to my parents last night and this came up again. They've said this before. Um, 
because you're talking about my kids and how they're doing in school and stuff. And my dad was like, yeah, I remember, you know, getting your grades from uh, when you're at Reed and thinking, wow, he must not be paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But look at me now. I, I I was, I was successful. Reed was actually, I gave a great education in a lot of ways that I, that I still use. Mm, Definitely. Not not that this is an advertisement for Reed, but. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Well, so Michelle, biology. um, Yeah. But I think you describe yourself as a lapsed biologist on your website. And so I'd love to hear more about how that came to be and how perhaps you came to be uh, a science journalist. Yeah, sure. Um, And Jason's and my reminiscing about Reed is actually quite related because on on Monday I'm going to campus. I I live about an an hour from campus and I'm going to give a talk to uh, a group called the STEM Gems, which are uh, gender non-conforming students in STEM. And they want to hear about non-academic careers, which uh, when Jason and I attended read and and probably this is true of most small liberal art schools uh back in the dark ages there was there were very few models of non-academic careers i mean you were the people the mentors you were closest to were your professors and they had gone you know straight through graduate school and and done the sort of um taken the the most well-trodden path because they were passionate about the questions that they were pursuing and what happens if you are not of that frame of mind and by that frame of mind i mean not only that you're passionate about those questions but that you are that you really want to go deep and narrow into a certain subfield because that's tends to be what graduate school in the sciences um does for you and and I always felt myself to be though I I don't I wouldn't have articulated it at the time I at the time I just thought I was indecisive but I I was always more of a generalist I was really interested in connecting those subfields and connecting those questions Um, so I'm making it sound much better (laughs) Um, but but I I have come to think that it is valuable um, that that frame of mind is is valuable in addition to people who go deep and narrow um, that we need people um, who are science communicators or who are generalists within science who can make those connections and can communicate across fields and communicate um, what's happening you know within a field to the general public in a way that is not only clear but um, enticing for them to read (laughs) yeah absolutely Yeah, yeah definitely yeah, that's interesting what you said about like deep diving, because I feel like that's, um, yeah, that is something that happens, right? That is like the traditional path is like you find your your uh, your area of, of research, you find your organism of research, you find your, uh, you know, protein complex of research, and then you like spend the next 30 years becoming the expert in that one area. And that, I mean, you know, wonderful, amazing things have come from that. But then having a broader perspective can, like you're saying, make those, make those connections, make things clear to people who might not be interested otherwise, right? Yeah. And I mean, I understand why uh, people who pursue that path have a hard time communicating (laughs) with the general public because they, they are so specialized and they, they are on the frontier of their field. And so the people who understand them best are the people are their colleagues, are their closest colleagues. And, you know, I would never tell, I never tell researchers that, you know, it's their responsibility to become science communicators in addition to their research, because I have been working on science communication for 25 years and I'm still working on it. Like it's a skill and it's a separate career. Um, what I ask is that people know the language of science communication and know how to communicate with communicators. Um, but I, I understand why it's difficult for them to communicate outside their field. And so that's one of the reasons why I've come to think that science communication and that generalist frame of mind really is, is valuable. Um, and there's different levels of it too. I mean, I have friends who 
right, for the news pages of Science and Nature, where they are connecting fields for a scientific audience, because, of course, you know, scientists have trouble communicating with one another <laughs> across fields, yes. just like they have trouble communicating with the general public. So there's all kinds of ways to make those connections. Um, so when I graduated from Reed with a biology degree, I, um, I was fairly certain I didn't want to go into research as a career, um, but I supported myself for a few years working as a wildlife research field assistant, um, oh, which cool. was, a, yeah, it was a great, great experience. I had some wonderful jobs, mostly in the Southwest. Um, Where, the uh, what did you work on? I worked on tortoises mostly. Desert uh, tortoises? Yeah, in uh, Southwest Utah and then in Southern Arizona. And I did some, a little bit of botany. I worked on amphibians in California. Um, and they were great jobs. I loved being in the field. I loved, you know, that, that way of being mm -hmm. outside and getting to know other species. Uh, but I, you know, it became clear to me, I didn't want to be my boss. I wanted to, I wanted to know about those projects. Um, and I loved learning about them, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want that to be my only focus. And I also was very interested, and this is another thing that that led me toward journalism is a lot of these projects were taking place in these small towns where other species were incredibly politicized. I mean, the desert tortoises were a threat. They were and still are a threatened species. Um, I was working outside Tucson, Arizona in a wildfire burn, you know, also a very political issue. Uh, and so I got to see just how polarized, even at that time, some of these issues were how passionate people were on all sides about uh, why we were protecting species, why we weren't, why we shouldn't, who would bear the mm -hmm. costs, all yeah. of those questions. And I thought, these are questions that science, at least the science I know, isn't addressing. And I'm those are really interesting to me. And how can I pursue them? And um, journal, there are many ways to do that uh, within academia and without it. But journalism was the way I found to do that. Interesting. So, um, sorry, Jason, go ahead. I had a desert tortoise no, little tidbit. No, no, go ahead with your desert well, tortoise. I love to talk funny. about tortoises. They're, yeah. they're pretty adorable. Um, Utah DNR has recently had some desert tortoises up for adoption. Oh, really? Um, yeah. The department, yeah. Because, you know, they get removed from their habitat and they can't be of reintroduced course. because of disease risk. And so yeah. they try to rehome them. Um, but mm. of course, I live in northern, well, northern, yeah, northern Utah. I don't live in southern Utah. I live in Salt Lake City. And um, it's harder for them here because of the winter. So you have to have an indoor habitat in the winter yeah. for them. And so right. a little heated tank. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought about it. I thought about it. I thought about how I could convert like part of my furnace room to a little spot for a desert tortoise, but um I had friends who had some of those I had friends who had some of those rehomed tortoises and uh oh. or adopted tortoises and in the winter when they hibernate, you know, they would just kind of shut themselves up and uh, you'd see them under the bed, you know, just like little, little rocks <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, or in a drawer. And then they, you know, and they warmed oh. up, they'd start to move around. And Yeah, I thought yeah. about that, but my household already has a cat, a lot of snakes, and, you know, probably can't support a tortoise in addition to all those uh, yeah. other animals. That's so. that's so funny. I didn't know that they did that rehoming. That's, mm -hmm. I mean, it makes sense, but yeah, yeah that's really interesting. Well, and they're, I think it sounds like they're pretty um, mindful about who they rehome, right? So you have to go through a process of like saying you'll have all these things for the desert tortoise. Because there are also cases, I mean, the reasons that sometimes they're displaced from their habitat is people find them and take them. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. You know, there is a smuggling issue. So, yeah. so yeah, I worked this, I mean, this is many years ago now, but I worked outside St. George, Utah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, sorry, Jason, you were going to ask something more no no I, well I, yeah I wanted to um tie in um Michelle's uh book Beloved Beasts um uh, because I think it's really interesting what uh, some of the things that she was saying about you know working in these uh, small towns and the kinds of different issues and stuff one of the things that I found really interesting about the book so far is the the kind of complicated legacy and I think that's kind of the point right there's a complicated legacy of conservation and there are many different sides and many different things and sometimes the roots of great 
things may have, um, you know, dubious uh, background, right? I don't know if I said that right, but yeah. um, they may have dubious roots and you might, we might look at that in the filter of today and maybe even the filter of, of yesterday and think, wow, that's really not a great place to be coming from, but we've arrived at a place that is, that is better, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I could go on about this, but I, and I won't, but <laughs> I, I do think the conservation movement has, is starting to combine, uh, or has started to recognize many of its past oversights. It has it has roots in you know very elite wealthy circles back in the back in the 1900s. There's a legacy of racism and colonialism, some of which is still uh, unfortunately um, causing a lot of suffering for people. Uh, but I do see the movement as a whole recognizing those oversights doing the right thing to correct them and also drawing from its very genuine accomplishments, you know, drawing from the science it's learned from over the years um, and really trying to combine the best of its successes uh, with uh, some reparations, so to speak, or some changes of directions that are really sincere. And so, I mean, if I look back, the genesis of all of that book was, was what I witnessed in some of these small towns, including in St. George, Utah, where people were just fighting tooth and nail over the fate of these species. And and even then, I think it was clear to me that nobody, nobody really, if you could give them a truth serum, you know, nobody really wants a species to go extinct. You know, sometimes when people have very hostile feelings towards tortoises or spotted owls or wolves, a lot of that is hostility toward government policy or, you know, or its hostility toward what they assume conservationists stand for. Um, and so I do think there is a shared ethic at some level. Humans do want to coexist with other species. Um, but how that's done is so controversial mm -hmm. and, um, and trying to find that shared ethic underneath all the politics and all the history and all the resentment is uh, daunting, but also fascinating. I mean, it's a fascinating layered history. So, so yeah, I think I, that book really, I wouldn't have put it this way then, of course, but uh, that book really started back then as I looked at, you know, as I sat in these uh, town meetings with my mouth open going, what is going <laughs> on? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it is fascinating even about how, you know, and this is part of what I study, kind of the intersection of, of politics and science and, and media in some cases, and in the case of what I study, but um, just communication in general, right, that so much of science is not uh, separate from its political implications or its social implications. And um, it's so interesting I wonder, especially in, in things like conservation, you know, uh, like value in biodiversity and species in and of itself, right? Innate value in it is is important. But I I wonder to what extent people recognize innate value. Like, I, you know, you mentioned that if you could give people a truth serum, they would all want species to exist and not go extinct. But I wonder about that because I... I don't know. I don't know whether as humans we, you know, ascribe innate value. I'm sure some of us do, right? Like um, innate value to species and biodiversity, or is it value through what the environment can provide for us as a species, you know? Well, I think it's a mix, of course. I mean, there, yeah. you know, everyone values, everyone values clean air and clean water. And, um, and so everyone has instrumental values nature for instrumental reasons and values other species probably for instrumental reasons and you know i'm not saying that that everybody cares whether or not the snail darter goes extinct mm -hmm. <laughs> i think there's probably some people yeah. who would say let it go um <laughs> and certainly there's some people who you know just grew up thinking a certain species was a pest and, like mosquitoes right like yeah better off better off gone but i think generally when people grow up and are familiar with a species, um, there is at some level they feel 
as though this, hey, this is a form of life that I don't want to be responsible for it disappearing forever. You know, extinction is a extinction is a heavy thing. And I think that most people recognize that. And that's, of course, an assumption, maybe an optimistic assumption of mine, but it's based on a lot of reporting in different places. Um, probably most, most strikingly for me was when I went to Namibia for my book, research on the book. And in Namibia, they have a um, well-established community conservation program that started in a very gas grassroots way and now is nationwide. Um, so there's a lot of local uh, agency over conservation decisions. And I was really moved sitting in meetings of people who are conservancy members who were, you know, it was up to them to discuss what the data looked like, what the hunting quarters should be. And, and I thought, this is amazing because I don't know that I've ever been in a meeting and I've been in a lot of similar readings where people had many more resources. I don't know if I've ever been in a meeting where there was a shared, maybe not explicit, but there was an obvious assumption that we want these species to persist. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe it's because the burdens of living alongside species that can be troublesome, <laughs> like elephants and rhinos, um, have been lifted a little bit by these conservancy programs people have have are able to share in the benefits and some of the burdens have been lifted because they uh and they are able to meet their basic needs and and so mm -hmm. you know the the income from some of these conservancy programs allows them to build fencing just basic oh, things that mm -hmm. basic things that prevent you know some of the worst damage not that they don't have to make they don't have to get rich on conservation but they are able to meet their basic needs um, a little bit better than before this program existed. And I did feel like, oh, this revealed this existing understanding mm -hmm. that hmm. we don't want, we actually don't want the government coming in here shooting elephants. <laughs> we want, you know, these, these elephants benefit us in some small ways. They're also a pain in our butt. Um, but there's ways to live with them and they're part of the place that we live in. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think, you know, with some caveats, I think that care is probably there at some level mm -hmm. with people, but like I said, it's been so politicized and right, there's yeah. so much on top of that. Um, and I find all that stuff really understandable. I mean, yeah, I, everybody does need to make a living and nobody likes change. <laughs> Um, there's, when I was working in Utah, uh, the Bundys, who you may be familiar with, the Bundy brothers who took over the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon uh, in 2016, their dad was already making noise about tortoises. That's how they got their start um, in, in their brand of far right wing political mm -hmm. activism. And I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. <laughs> <laughs> But I do have some sympathy for the people who follow them or who are, or who connect with their rhetoric. Mm -hmm. um, that sense of alienation and that sense of, hey, I haven't been listened to. Sure. Um, so, and that continues to be fascinating to me. Um, so I wanted to ask, how how did you go from working outside of St. George, Utah and, and in the Southwest yeah. of the United States doing field work to journalism? Yeah, well, I <laughs> I got an internship, which is something oh, I still suggest. Um, fortunately, internships are now paid. <laughs> um, I got an internship at a publication uh, called High Country News, which covers communities and public lands and conservation issues and social issues in the American West. Yeah. And as it happens, I'm right now I'm serving as acting editor in chief of High Country News. So it's been a, a common thread in my life. Great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been a contributing editor there for years and years. But but that was my first that was my introduction to journalism. And I, you know, at the time, I think internships and I know the internship at High Country News is much more competitive than it was when I applied, but they were willing to take me without any journalism experience and with a biology background and an interest in writing, which is really all I had, um, and an interest in 
you know, telling stories about science. And they put me to work, you know, writing short little news pieces about things that were happening in the West um, with regard to conservation and conservation politics and uh, public lands policy. And it was really love at first draft. Mm. So I just, I just loved it. Um, love at love first it. draft would be a good <laughs> name for like an autobiography or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, also a great title for our podcast. So Michelle Park, one of the things <laughs> there we, we do go. is through conversation with our guests, we often have these little phrases that come up <laughs> that like, end up being the, here's the title of the, the title of the podcast mm. for, the, for the month. So yeah. Yeah. And I so just let, I loved the whole process. I loved the, I love nerding out about grammar and I loved the, uh, I love the reporting and I loved, and I cared about the issues. I was fascinated by the issues. So um, I genuinely loved learning about them. So I was wondering, um, was that kind of a spark moment then when you, like when you like the first day on your internship or I don't know when you, your first assignment or something like that, was that you, you were like realized at that point that that was something you loved or did it take a little bit longer to kind of like get like the uh you know get the idea you mean you said it was love at first draft but it was that like yeah did it happen right away I think so I mean I don't know if yeah. I would have put it into words mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah but looking back yeah I mean I remember the first few days at High Country News I was put to work like writing these little event announcements you know and I and I realized like oh this is scut work but I actually love this too <laughs> where it's not like you know with science where I felt like Oh, maybe after a while I get to the fun stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and for some people, you know, the some people, every piece of their scientific experience is delightful. And that wasn't true. I'm not for sure me. who those people mm-hmm. are. Yeah, but, I don't know who um, they are. Yeah. But but <laughs> I mean they've not, never had to deal with budgets. So yeah, right. <laughs> right. And I'm not saying that every part of journalism is delightful for me, far from it. But I think I realized like, oh, I'm doing this thing that is very unglamorous and yet yeah it's kind of cool yeah yeah so (laughs) So so, that was a good sign Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm also interested in did when if you did uh when you had a realization that you could actually pursue this as a career right so sometimes you're you might be like i love this and not really think immediately that that could be a career like, how am I going to support myself doing this? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, what I didn't realize was that science writing was a profession um, because it was far less formalized at the time. You know, this is in the mm-hmm. late nineties and there weren't graduate programs, at least not that I knew of. Um, certainly people were doing science writing, <laughs> um, but it just wasn't, there wasn't a clear career path, you know, okay, you go to this program and you get this internship and then, you know, you kind of move mm-hmm. your, move up the ladder at this or that publication. Um, and there were far fewer outlets that were doing science writing. Um, so I think, I don't know how far I was thinking ahead in my early twenties, <laughs> But I was definitely thinking, yeah, this is something I want to keep doing. Um, I want to stick around at this publication for a while, and I want to keep writing. I want to figure out how to do this. That's great. Um, Yeah. And and how was that learning curve? Because, you know, writing in science is very different from writing. Yeah. And I never went to graduate school in journalism. Um, I meant to, but (laughs) I realized that (laughs) that uh the job I had was the job I would want coming out of graduate school so I decided not to go into debt and um (laughs) yeah definitely I I um yeah the learning curve I mean the thing I tell people who are trying to decide whether or not to go into graduate school is that it's really great to have a chance to make mistakes in private (laughs) and I had to make all my mistakes in public and um you know, not only just mistake mistakes, which I made my share of, um, but like publishing bad things, <laughs> uh, publishing things that I am not proud to look back upon. And, you know, graduate school is a great place to get all the basics at once, um, to get, you know, a good grounding in um, in some of the 
some of the things that are really necessary to learn, like libel law. Uh, you know, fortunately, mm. I never got into mm. trouble with that. But looking back, it's like that eh, would have been good to have that yeah. delivered to me all at once. Um, and it's also a great way into the profession in terms of meeting mentors, meeting colleagues, you know, meeting your future colleagues, um, getting your foot in the door with an internship or an externship or whatever, um, whatever way you mm. you do your, you know, you pay your dues. Um, if you can find those things elsewhere without paying for them, do that. <laughs> and High Country News was my place to do that. So it was my graduate school. Um, and I was really lucky to have good editors there and um, and to have readers who High Country News has a very committed readership, uh, sometimes too committed. If you make a mistake, you will hear, <laughs> you will hear about it and from multiple directions. And so oh, that's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, they all taught me how to do what I do. It's interesting to hear I because I wonder and I think we probably be be remiss if we didn't talk about kind of the shrinking newsrooms and journalism in general and the state of journalism and what that means for for sort of science journalists in particular because you know shrinking generalist newsrooms means science journalists are are sort of you know left out even more so yeah yeah i mean there will always be science journalism i think but whether science journalists get paid for what they do mm. is an entirely different question and uh i've been at this long enough journalism has been falling apart since i joined the profession i don't think it was my fault but it has. <laughs> it's true it's so true because you know i started as a journalist in 1998 and then you know that's when classified ad revenue was collapsing and we were trying to figure out you know the digital model mm -hmm. um a digital model for journalism revenue and we're still figuring that out mm -hmm. so and i think the opportunities in science journalism have changed over the years they've ebbed and flowed they've gone from staff opportunities to freelance opportunities to you know there was the whole era where everyone was blogging their heads off for free as kind of an audition yeah. <laughs> um, for a staff job. And I'm you know, glad certainly some amazing journalism was done, um, but I'm glad those days were over because it's, it's a that makes it a very high bar for entry and it's a very inequitable sure. bar for entry. Um, so I don't know. I, yeah. I don't have this a crystal is, I mean, ball. this is a, this yeah. is a the decades long struggle, right? That it's a decades long struggle. And I, I've certainly, I've seen some great entrepreneurial innovations come along during that time. I mean, I think we have figured out some things about paywalls that with larger publications that people are willing to pay for. Um, institutions like ProPublica that are doing amazing investigative journalism and other kinds of really important journalism um, that are funded by foundations, which mm -hmm. is, you know, has its problems, but um, I'm glad that we have those institutions. Um, they're certainly doing really important work, holding power to account. Mm -hmm. um, but it's no, it's not good. I think the thing that worries me most is the decline of local news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. not, you know, which includes science journalism. We hope. We hope uh, yes, but overall is just is just cratering and i have lived in small towns all my adult life and i have seen how the lack of a a local publication is not only just terrible for community life but it's terrible for uh it's terrible for democracy because you know misinformation takes its place um so I think that that I'm glad to see a real focus on uh, among philanthropists who are interested in journalism on local news. There's a lot of innovative things happening, um, but there's of course no no one solution that's going to solve it. Right. Um, yeah. And I think it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of good ideas. Which I think brings us to the next sort of new thing that we have to grapple with. And this is on my mind because I went to a panel on ChatGPT recently right. at gpt right. yeah yeah um so for those of us who may not have heard chat gpt is sort of this natural language uh, artificial intelligence that you can have a conversation with it's um i guess developed 
by a company called OpenAI, and you can access it freely right now online. Um, and it, you know, there are concerns. So several institutions have come out with statements around what you, how, how does it affect higher education, what you can and cannot do, right? Because there's some concerns that you could say, hey, ChatGPT, write me an essay about X. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it will write something. Um, so I'm, I'm curious and I don't, I haven't asked it to do that. So I don't know the, the sort of, um, I have quality. Have yeah. you? Have you asked? No, yeah. Jason so asked first, it to write his last paper. So the very first thing I did was ask it to write an abstract for a paper that I'm interested in, that I'm interested in writing because I've, I've followed on Twitter, some other people's experiences, both good and bad, mm. um, and yeah, it was interesting, but but continue. I can well tell I me can... about the abstract. I'm curious because yeah. I've heard that it's very good with like structure of something. Yes, um, mm -hmm. but the details are often not the quite right. So yeah, and this is a scientific <laughs> abstract in a fairly. I gave it a very specific kind of area because I wanted to kind mm. of test it. Like, like the way that it's built is very. Um, agnostic to source right it's it, they're called large language models because they basically take as much of corpus of of knowledge they can find on the web and they have different places that they get from this and they basically turn loose this fairly sophisticated uh deep learning uh framework on it and it basically learns associations between words um and that sounds like really simple, but the what it can do with it is actually like eerie. Um, so it just does that. And my my thought was like, how is it going to be able to put together an idea that is like something that we are planning on publishing as a concept that is fairly novel, right? Mm. Um, and so I gave it, I gave it a prompt of a sentence or two where I was like, okay, I want, you know, something that an abstract for a scientific paper that addresses this problem with these considerations. Um, and I was Im impressed with the results on one hand in that, like you said, it gives the structure and it kind of gives sentences that are like, you read them and you're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, the criticism that I've heard from some places um, with people experimenting is that that structure and that that the generality is its is its uh, strength, right? So it can give you read it and you're like, did I read anything meaningful? Mm, I don't know. Like maybe <laughs> um, it's kind of like very general. And and there are some places that are like, oh, what I what I felt like with that abstract is I and I didn't use it further. Um, but I felt like you could, for a scientific paper or a report or something like that, you could ask it to write something like that. And then you could go through and say, oh, I need a sentence like this, but with more technical detail, or I need a little mm -hmm. emphasis on this, or I need, and then you could, you could basically use it as like a rough draft. And it would probably have places that were just, you know, completely wrong, right? But then it would have places where you're like oh I like the way that it was that was worded because I found places like that which is interesting yeah, because I, I just read an article in the Atlantic saying just that right that it's just going to create different kinds of work for us um it's a tool right. that we imagine might create a, might, might reduce our workload but actually it's probably just going to create different kinds of work different and, so and great, it's, yeah having done a lot I mean I having done a lot of this so mm. a big part of my job is to take um, to take writing generated by intelligence and um, and go over it and proofread it and figure out how to state it better and figure out where it's not clear and stuff. So not artificial intelligence. I have people working on teams that, you know, sometimes they're collaborators, sometimes they're um, people who are working on my, my projects, interns and stuff who generate this kind of language. And if you're talking about someone who's just starting out, who's never written a scientific paper right, before, yeah. you look at it and you're like, uh, wow, there's so many different problems with this, but okay, here's the, here's the parts that are good. And here's the parts that are bad. So, you know, you kind of already at, at some level in science, you're already doing this, sure. um, okay. but you have to watch out for the problem is, is that I think AI is just going to get better and it's going to get more and more 
able to fool even fool experts in greater and greater depth, right? So you're going to be right now, you're like, if you're an expert in the field, you're like, this is written by an AI or it's written by somebody who doesn't know, hmm. you know, doesn't know but the I, area, well, but that's not what very I wonder. Long. Yeah. It, the AI is getting better, but the data to train the model is comes from us, you know, like that. Yeah. Like how much better is that going to get? I guess um, there may be more of it generated. I think there's going to be, I, I'm really interested to watch this because I think there's going to be things we've already seen in AI with um, biases that are, that are introduced by our training sets. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you train yeah. something on a on a in set crime, that, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like there's huge biases and mm -hmm. the kinds of language and the kinds of writing that are available publicly or, you know, available on the Web. It, we're going to there's going to be places where it's going to generate things that you're just like, oh, my gosh, did it really say that? You know, I haven't seen that, but I'm sure that's going to happen. Yeah. Michelle, I'm curious yeah. about your thoughts in terms of how it, you know, as they're related to journalism and science journalism and, and this new tool that maybe will create more work. Yeah, I, gosh, sometimes I think we've all talked so much about ChatGPT. Yeah. We can now have this conversation written by <laughs> ChatGPT. Yeah, um, that's right. But I, I do a lot of journalism that's done online or so-called journalism that's done online is really rote and cookie cutter. And if chat GPT can do that for me, <laughs> great. Like <laughs> right. if it can, if it can suggest a bunch of SEO headlines for a story and then let me choose among them. Perfect. You know, there's all kinds of really, um, I think, I think, you know, maybe useful at some very basic level, but not creative, um, right. you know, very formulaic writing that passes for journalism. Um, that I am completely fine with ChatGPT taking over <laughs> for me um, and for all of us. And I guess I, and I may look back at this in five years and think how stupid I was, but I do feel about ChatGPT the same way I feel about self-driving cars or perhaps graphing calculators um, in that they can do they can do certain things, but there are certain things they will never be able to do, you know, just like a self-driving car can't make the decision about, oh my God, I don't want to run over this fox. Is it safe mm -hmm. to swerve? Um, and, a, you know, a graphing calculator can't come up with, you know, a new, can't, can't, you know, chart a new path in mathematics like a human brain right. can. I think there will always be things that chat GPT can't do because it's like you say, it's, it's, AI, its version of AI is based on us, you know, so it's always going to be in the past and it can't look to the future. And, you know, I think we still can, we can at least make some educated guesses and, and we can, and we can speak from our own personal experience, which AI is never going to have. Mm -hmm. So, well, think, and old, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no. And I, I think journalism, you know, over the years has, has abandoned well, not entirely abandoned, but it has, I think most journalists realize that the old model of like news from nowhere, yeah. as Neil Postman liked to call it, um, yeah. of, you know, this kind of institutional, impersonal voice delivering the news as if it was, you know, this is the only fair version of it is, is, is misleading in a way it's impossible and it's misleading um you know we certainly want to have factual journalism but it's better to be transparent about our perspective where we're coming you know what in mm -hmm. what knowledge we're bringing to a story what perspective we're bringing to a story and and chat gpt can't have those things only individual humans can have those things Right, which I think brings up then the concern about misinformation, which I've heard, right? Uh, you know, you ask ChatGPT a question about something factual, but of course it's fed by information on the internet. And so based on that information, it might actually be able to feed you misinformation. Um, exactly. I mean, and we struggle with that in journalism all the time anyway. I right. mean, you know, you talk about teaching students to write abstracts. You know, we have to teach new journalists that... I mean, they know not to believe everything on the internet, but we have to, right. we have to, it's, 
remind them that they need to make a phone call um, and that they need to, you know, even if something has been repeated a million times, um, they can't get they can't get sucked into that. And I have to remind myself that too, you know, it's very seductive um, to see something in black and white or in pixels um, many times and think, oh, well, this surely is true. Yeah. Um, yeah. My and kids. It's oh, not, you know, yeah, it's not. Watching my kids come through school at a time when, you know, when the internet is completely available and they're they're native, they're basically native to the internet, right? They is really interesting because I find that um that you know one of the big skills is like everybody else has to learn is like, okay, one source on the internet is not something that you should be putting your whole like, oh, the evidence for this paragraph is this quote from this one website, right? You have to mm -hmm. like research it and you have to figure out how how do you figure out what the truth is from multiple sources of information um and i and i i guess tying it back to chat gpt i feel like it's chat gpt represents a tool that's a bit like that right um you will have lots and lots of cases and i'm sure there already are of of students and other people basically not thinking about it at all just write me a report for this and then dumping it out there and that's, I know that um, teachers and professors and people who are looking, working with students are, are worried about that, right? They're, they're worried that they're, that it's going to be hard to discriminate from, from some students real, you know, actual work. Yeah. And I, well, and so I think, I, I actually think of it more as an opportunity because it, it sort of yeah. means that students have to be a little more discerning about the information and have the skills and tools to do that, right? So I, I teach a research methods course, which in which we do some coding for data analysis, right, in, in a computer language. And so you could put in, you know, the, the code that you have and say, like, make this correct or, or make it more efficient. And I've done that and actually broke that my data analysis code in like the first three lines, right? <laughs> um, and I've heard from others that, you know, for things like that, it doesn't, it comes up with something, again, structurally that looks correct, but the details aren't correct. Like none of that code will run and produce, you know, mm -hmm. something usable, um, which, you know, on the one hand, I've heard that, but then on the other hand, you can't actually talk to your computer because you can ask chat GPT through your microphone to like create me a graph with these kinds of data add some noise blah 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 and it will do a fairly decent job of that right um, but I still think it is you know I think one of the advantages is that natural language part that students can learn problem solving skills for example in data analysis through using natural language and asking for that structure right I have mm -hmm. figured out how to solve this problem, I know what the steps are. I can talk to this chat GPT in natural language and it can give me a structure, but then I have to go through and debug that code to make it workable. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm married to a teacher. I have a lot of teachers in my life and I have heard, um, I have, you know, certainly there's a lot of concern like, oh, geez, you know, this is, we've already had to worry about plagiarism from the web, um, people downloading papers from any one yeah. of umpteen sites where you can buy them. Um, this is a new thing to worry about. However, I have also heard some really interesting ideas about how it might be helpful. Um, you know, yeah. I grew up in the age of Cliff Notes, maybe you guys did too, or now there's yeah. all kinds yeah. of yeah. digital versions of Cliff Notes, you know, um, and teachers were always like, don't just look at the Cliff Notes. Um, <laughs> And it's true, like you couldn't, and they would they would design tests so that, you know, if, if you had just looked at the cliff notes, you wouldn't have all the information. They had to be crafty about things <laughs> yeah. like that then. But I remember always looking at the cliff notes and then reading, you know, if, if it was a very complicated text, like looking at the cliff notes and then yeah. reading the text, knowing that, you know, that I couldn't just read the cliff notes because right. I was gonna flunk the test, but um, the text became so much more comprehensible if I had a summary. You know, if I had a summary of like what happens in the Shakespeare play, then you could enjoy the language and the human, you know, mm -hmm. all the like human mystery and wonder of the text without right. being like, what the who is the Duke of who, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I think there are and the, the opportunities I've heard are similar to that where where yeah. you know biology teachers can say all right you know explain the Krebs cycle, you know, a student can yeah. say explain the Krebs cycle to me and get it 
in you know simpler and simpler language until they do understand it and then they can go from there and start to think more originally about okay how you know now that i know the krebs cycle what can i do with it how can i design an experiment those mm -hmm. sorts of things yeah and i think i think a lot of my concerns come from sort of the ethics around around chat gpt and its training corpus right because yeah. it has a yeah. very uh western weird bent right what is it white educated uh weird yeah white yeah, educated weird. educated uh i forget I what the i and the r are but yes right i mean you get the set you get the idea right it's kind yeah of yeah very western world privilege generally more right. white and so on but it does have this bent but in general i mean the internet kind of has that bent it does right? and yeah and i think that that worries me more than anything else is the yeah and it's the bias in the training set biases yeah. right mm -hmm. and you, right. the stuff that you generate is going to be necessarily biased in ways that are going to be very difficult to understand because you don't know where the source is right yep that's right. i mean that is one of the problems is that chat gpt takes all these sources and mangles them together and they have in inherent biases right right but i think like michelle was saying like the bias in ai and crime for example in criminology those biases are very similar to what we might see in some in this kind of large language model right in yeah. that it it is only as good as its training corpus right um, and, and so, i mean those yeah. have destroyed people's lives i mean those are right. very high stakes so i think yeah. we should we should look at those with caution um you know we should we should take a cautionary lesson from those um because there's certainly cases where a biased training set for chat gpt could really cause Right. problems as well yeah. well and then there's also the inequities of kind of how chat gpt is trained to recognize toxicity right because it won't do anything rude or toxic and toxic oh it ads. won't i didn't no, i don't yeah, know about no, this it, really yeah, how does it define it, toxic yes. yeah so this is where i think um some have argued that it is inequitable because it is actually trained by sort of very low paid workers not in the united states i believe uh, in in kenya um to recognize but not to recognize toxicity with a weird hat on right with a kind of western i believe western lens of what defines toxicity and so mm -hmm. it is interesting um my understanding is that it won't make jokes that are rude that it won't make jokes about certain people or characters or uh, but but maybe will about others that are non-western um, i haven't tried this but i i would encourage trying Interesting. this yeah so i mean these are how some of the biases sort of play out right in mm -hmm. in, in what the training corpus is and so yeah it's interesting to watch. I do think that the the biases are something that concern me more than the like students copying a paper or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I feel that that is a new variation on a very old problem. Um, yes. Yeah. But but yeah, the biases and and then the yeah, the reinforcement of existing biases that, you know, I think all of us are working yeah. very hard to overcome <laughs> is much more troubling to me. Yeah. yeah. You know the uh, generation, right? This is uh, this is Chat GPT uh, based on GPT four or something like that, right? When we get to GPT eight, is that going to be mostly fed on output from Chat GPT? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think isn't there posing this as a ridiculous, uh, you know, ridiculous thing? <laughs> but is there could be some circularity, right? If a exactly. lot of what's being generated is kind of put through this chat GPT-4 right. and then. Right. Yeah. And then we all have mad cow disease because we've been feeding <laughs> right. cows. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, It'll be a digital, uh, yeah, digital, well, digital uh, guru or something. So here's one um, implementation, I guess, of GPT. I think it's GPT-3. Anyway, the latest GPT, right, that is being used. So it's being used in a lot of other places. ChatGPT is just like one product, right, that the public that we can interface with. But there's another um, product that might be actually interesting um, to us in that it's SciSpace. And what it does is you can upload an, a journal article and 
it's an AI co-pilot that helps you understand, like you can highlight yeah. a section of it and it'll translate it into more natural language. Right? Now that's, yeah, I mean, that's what I think is really, could be really useful in being kind of a sophisticated cliff notes in a positive way. Yeah. Right. Um, I, yeah, I, I, you'll yeah. put, you'll, you'll put I'll, that link in there. I'll put that link show in. Notes, right? yeah. Interesting. I'm, I'm curious I'd to love to play it. with that. Yeah. I mean, and I, yeah, I've also just started a, an account and I just want to play with it. I also wonder about whether it's going to remain open source. That is another oh, equity yep. issue that I mm -hmm. wonder about in terms of GPT and its applications. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I use Otter AI sometimes for transcription and, mm -hmm. you know, it's far, a far less sophisticated form of AI uh, than ChatGPT, but it can be pretty good. And it has a feature, Otter has a feature where it will not only transcribe your interview with relative accuracy, but it will summarize it. So give a kind of an outline. Oh, yeah. And I actually find that really useful. Like, okay, what did we talk, you know, what does this right. AI see as important in this transcript? What did I, as an interviewer, emphasize? What did I maybe overemphasize or leave out? Um, so those kinds of things that that can point out patterns that I, I as a human, um, might have missed, I think, right. yeah. have some real utility. Yeah. I mean, That's I can it. see, I can imagine situations where they might be able to point out bias, like, hey, mm. all your sources are men, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, and more sophisticated kinds of, you know, yeah. more subtle kinds of bias that might come up in an article. That's that's an interesting point too. I was gonna I was just gonna shift back because I had I have a question for Michelle, but um, but it's interesting because there have been uh, AI tools to detect AI generated text. <laughs> yes. So, um, so you have these kinds of things where you're you're uh, in your point kind of brings up an interesting point, which is could you have um, ethical AI that was basically to to try to detect biases, to try to detect our inherent, like that could actually be super useful if you're like, I wrote this thing and now I want to see, mm. you know, what perspective am I taking that I don't realize I'm taking, but that, you know, I don't know if you could do that. It's interesting. Ooh, that concerns me a little though. Yeah, I can imagine the problems, but I do see that yes. there's an opportunity for it. Like, because there's all, of course, all kinds of, unconscious bias from the very micro level in the language to the framing um, yeah, I, it's of the story itself. I, yeah, it's something that I think about a lot in my, mm -hmm. my own uh, personal position in the world, right? Um, white male, privileged, um, and I have to think, I try to think about it, but then I know that there's blind spots that I'm not thinking about and that I have to listen to other people who might be telling me this. So anyway. Yeah. Um, Yep. I, um, uh, I, oh, I was just going to add that I, so I am acting editor of High Country News these days, and I have worked really closely with High Country News over the years. And we now have a very strong Indigenous affairs desk. And we routinely, whenever we have a story that touches on Indigenous people, we routinely uh, send it to someone on the desk for what we call a cultural competency read. But it's really just for someone to weigh in and say, yeah. Hey, this framing is really bad backwards or did you realize, you know, you're starting history with, you know, you're starting your history mm -hmm. in 1492, like, hello, um, <laughs> or, you know, some kind of, I mean, they're much more diplomatic about it than I just was, but, um, or, you know, hey, this term is a little bit out of date. And I find that, and I don't think you could ever replace that with AI. I mean, if you could, I'd like to see it, but, you know, that takes lived experience and I find it fascinating and rewarding as a journalist, you know, to have that pointed out and to say, oh, okay, you know, how can, how can I fix this and how can I learn from this? So uh, I think we still need, we, we still need humans and their lived experience, but yeah. there are ways, I think there might be ways for AI to point out um, yeah. language biases that, you know, those very sort of right. concrete, small scale um, biases that we might not otherwise be aware of. I guess the problems with that are kind of similar to the problems with the larger AI in general, which is that um, it'd be a great tool, but you, but, but if you were writing something and you're like, oh, I passed it by AI, so it's fine. Mm. That's mm -hmm. not right. 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 Yeah. 
Um, I do have, uh, I, I did want to bring it back to one of your other books, Michelle, that you published in 2016, um, The Science Writer's Handbook. And yeah. speaking of lived experience, right, is this, I, want, I just want to hear more about this book and whether it is sort of your lived experience and lessons learned or, you know, because I, I feel like it, it could be a very interesting and important book for anyone who might be interested in getting into this space. Yeah, there is the um, the Science Writers Handbook is a book I co-edited with um, Thomas Hayden, and it's written by it's really a collection of essays written by a group of our colleagues. And um, it was, as we conceived it, it was a a, a holistic uh, look at what it's like to be a science writer. Mm. You know, because we talk not only not only about the craft of science writing and the career of science writing, how to get into it and so forth, but also how to make a life as what was then probably the most common way of making a living as a science writer, which was freelancing. Mm. Um, so it's it's very it's intended for freelancers, though I think everybody is a freelancer now in a sense because <laughs> there's so much in journalism you know there's so much more pressure to be entrepreneurial in in your within your staff job because there's so much less security so i think yeah. a lot of those lessons are applicable to people who have staff jobs yeah um and then there's also there's a a secondary book that i wrote called the science writers essay handbook which is something i wrote myself and it's a short book about writing essays um so writing the things that could not be written by ChatGPT, <laughs> I like <laughs> right. to think how to use, and it's not only about personal essays, it's also about critical and analytical essays, but, but it is mm. about, you know, how to bring your personal experience into it, how to bring your, your personal voice, if not your personal experience into writing about science. And I really compare essay writing, I, which I, I think essay writing has a lot of parallels with the scientific process and that it's an exploration you know, yeah. it reaches it reaches a um, a tentative but certainly not final conclusion. It's building on other work, so I think it lends the essay form lends itself really well to writing about science and scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, those are both books that I think are still relevant to science and um, and to to aspiring science writers there's also a, a newer really good book called the craft of science writing that's put out by the open notebook i'm sure you've talked about the open notebook here uh, before but it's a wonderful site with tons of resources and the craft of science writing is out now and um, it's going to be a second edition is going to be published uh pretty soon but that is also that's has examples of it has interviews with science writers, content from the, the Open Notebook site, so um, craft essays by different science writers um, who draw on multiple sources. Uh, so a bunch of really useful information. Great. Uh, we'll be know, sure we, to link that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think those all those kinds of resources are useful because, as we were talking about before we got um, before we started recording, um, for scientists or graduate students who. Are, want to come into science writing there's often um there's often confusion or or just frustration because the path is not as clear as it is in science um there are so many ways to be successful as a science writer so many ways to write about science so many places so many paths you can take it's not just okay i find a graduate program and then i find you know i find an advisor who's helpful. Right. And then I find, you know, a position in an institution where I can do my research. Um, it's much less clear than that. And you have to be much more comfortable with uncertainty. So any of these resources that I think try to codify what is basically like oral history <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or, you know, and, and, and I know that, I mean, I, I know I'm speaking for other science writers when I say that we really lean on each other for that kind of information. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we look to each other as for ideas about what to do as, as science writers, where to go next, um, and then also just the practical information, like, how much is that magazine paying you? <laughs> how much, right. you yeah. know, did, yeah. did they lose your check again? You know, we talk <laughs> with each other and support each other um, through what is a very chaotic profession and um, chaotic sometimes in really exciting ways, but chaotic often in really challenging ways. So um, 
yeah, so those books essentially codify that kind of support or give you an idea of the support that's out there and I think are a great starting place. Mm -hmm. And I know one of them was supported by the uh, National Association of Science Writers. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Both um, the Science Writers Handbook and the Science Writers Essay Handbook got some support from National Association of Science Writers. Um, Science Writers Handbook was published by DeCapo Press. That's great. It sounds like that might be a good association if you are in, in interested mm. in science journalism. It sounds like a community of of friends who talk about what you've just said about the profession. Because that's something I, you know, I don't know about. I'm I'm sort of like science writing adjacent in that I study science communication, but I'm not embedded in the profession. So yeah, National Association of Science Writers is a very friendly organization. Um, Society for Environmental Journalists is another organization I've been in. Mm a member of for a long time. Um, both of them have various mentorship programs, ways of um, supporting students or aspiring science writers, um, and both of them have student membership rates. So I really, uh, those can be a stable home in a very tumultuous profession. So I really recommend that as an mm. early step to people, right. even, yeah. even if you're just thinking about the profession, um, join up and see what's out there because it can be a great orientation. That's great. Well, as usual, we've uh, we've gotten to about an hour or a little over an hour. Oh, and there's so many different things. <laughs> there's so many different things that I want to keep talking to you about, Michelle. But um, I think it'd be a great time to wrap it up. And uh, thank you very much for appearing uh, and talking with us about your experience. And um, I think it was a great and being so generous so. with your time and your knowledge thank you so much yes <laughs> thanks for having me it's great to talk to both of you it's great to talk with you as well happy new year to all our listeners i guess this is our first episode of 2023 and also oh, happy yeah. lunar new year it is the year of the rabbit <laughs>